Hi, I'm Tim Marlow, the Artistic Director of the Royal Academy of Arts in London. You're listening to a podcast from our events programme, recorded live in the new Benjamin West Lecture Theatre. Good evening and welcome to the Royal Academy. My name is Kira Milmo and I'm the Adult Learning Programme Manager at the Royal Academy. I'm delighted to introduce tonight's panel discussion, Sculpture as Social Practice, What is Sculpture Good For?, which is part of our public programme inspired by the Anthony Gormley exhibition that is currently on at the Royal Academy. This particular event is part of a series called Where Language Ends, um, which you can see some of the events behind you, which is inspired by conversations held by Anthony Gormley in his studio with guests from different disciplines. The series invites you to unpick and consider the wide-ranging themes that are featured within his practice, and we hope that um, following um, the series, you'll be encouraged to revisit the exhibition with new ideas and experience the work in a totally different manner. A note that there has been a slight adjustment to our panel tonight, as both Oscar Murillo and Helen Phoebe could sadly not join us for this event, but we're delighted that Deputy Director and Chief Curator of Up Projects, Mariam Zulfikar, will instead be joining us to accompany Director of Whitworth and Manchester Art Gallery, Alistair Hudson. We'd obviously planned for there to also be an artist joining our panel, but fortunately all our speakers tonight have extensive experience of working with artists in different capacities, and we'll be able to offer a broad conversation for you tonight. The event will be chaired by independent curator, critic, writer, and art advisor, Sasha Craddock. Her commitment to contemporary art encompasses curating, organizing, promotion, education, critical writing, and creating new networks decided to bring artists and audiences together. Tonight, Sasha will be asking our panelists to debate what impact sculptures have on the spaces they are presented in. They'll take into consideration the roles of communities and self-identity, look at the power of sculpture to transform a site into a purposeful place, and ask if sculpture can act as a catalyst for social change. So I think plenty to discuss in the next hour. Without further ado, please welcome our panel this evening. Thank you. Well, good evening. Um, I'm very excited about this session. Um, and the first thing I must say before I introduce the wonderful panelists is that we, this, ex, this is in order to coincide with the Anthony Gormley exhibition. So um, a, a sort of comment on his show at the moment, which that in a way, in a way I feel that the exhibition here, which I presume you've all seen, mm -hmm. um, deals, his work in the Royal Academy looks as if it's thinking about being elsewhere in some way. Nothing seems particularly fixed, and his work has, in a way, in our, in our mind and historically been about something you find elsewhere in different places, hidden, lost, by the sea, playing games. And so it's a funny relationship between very, very traditional sculpture in some way and the idea of the place and the strange place in which you may find it and its significance. And so I just have to say that to begin with, because the reason we're here together is we're going to talk about sculpture as such, not just that thing called public art. And we'll get on to the definition in a minute. So I just want to welcome um, to my left, first of all, Mariam Zulfikar, who is Deputy Director and Chief Curator at UP Project, UP, yeah. big U, big P. And Marion's curatorial and research interests are diverse and include cultural policy, interdisciplinary collaboration, moving image, 
Art in the Public Domain, Discourses Around Public Spaces, and the History of Ideas. So basically, she should cover the things we're thinking about. As an independent curator, Marion worked with various arts and cultural organisations and commissioning bodies, including Film and Video Umbrella, yeah. 1418 UK, 1418 now. Oh, now, yep. Art and Art on the Underground. Mariam has guest lectured at international and UK-based education institutions, including Goldsmiths, the Royal College of Art, McGill University, Canada and National College of Art, Pakistan, and Nash Canada, and National College of Art, Pakistan, yes. which is very important. Before returning to undertake her masters, Mariam collaborated with the diplomatic sector on a variety of cultural exhibitions and events across the UK. Mariam received a BA in public art and design from Chelsea, College of Art and Design, and an MA in Curating Contemporary Art from the Royal College of Art. Yes. So, and then Alistair Hudson, who has an amazing job, was appointed Director of the Whitworth and Manchester Art Gallery in February 2018. Before his move to Manchester, Alistair was Director of Middlesbrough Institute of Modern Art, MIMA, where his vision was based on the concept of the useful museum. We'll talk about that a lot. In the preceding 10 years, he was Deputy Director of Grisdale Arts, which gained critical acclaim for its radical approaches to working with artists and communities, based on the idea that art should be, once again, useful and not just an object of contemplation. Mm. Alistair is co-director of the Association d'Art Utile with Tanya Bruguera, an expansive international project, an online archive, that forms part of the Uses of Art programmes with the L'Internationale Confederation. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Sure, but it's, yeah. So let's, the, the, also the aim of these discussions or events is really not to hang around with individual sort of presentations where you get lost and mesmerized into an image, but we're going to be showing you moving images as we go along, but mainly the idea is to in a way cut the chase and talk more generally about these questions. And so, first of all, I've set us in the context of Anthony Gormley and his work. In fact, we have some here. Um, and I'll just go on. So, figures high up or sticking out or on the ground in places of great significance and history and unexpected and apparently innocent places, but they're never innocent, never neutral spaces. So, I've been around for a long time, and I remember very much the kind of hunt the art, you know, oh, it's up there, it's not there, and so on. So the whole relationship to Gormley's work is at times ones of great significance, at times just the unexpected, and also the relationship uh, where people were told not to try and rescue the body if they saw someone sort of leaning out. It really was a Gormley sculpture, not somebody in peril. So it's quite a serious relationship between the body and danger and so on. So already we're introducing the question of where sculpture can be situated and whether it's difficult to see it uh, where expected and whether in a way another thing we have to bring in how sculpture becomes almost invisible pretty quickly through familiarity. So there is a sort of familiarity breeds not just contempt but blindness to sculptural event too. And just not to talk about myself at all, but just to bring something I happen, thank God, to find among a pile of pre-internet um, articles was a piece 
uh, I wrote in 1990 about uh, Derry and about art in Derry, organised around the Orchard Gallery. And here is a Gormley piece here, and I'll just read to you because it's significant. Uh, this, um, the city wall around whose top they used child children used to hold races is no longer passable. Corrugated iron and barbed wire presents, prevents much movement. But there is one vantage point that looks down across the bog side and back to the Protestant cathedral in a sculpture by Anthony Gormley. Uh, it was placed, uh, was placed there. A cast iron man stands with arms akimbo, a two-faced shell, sullen mummy. He looks both ways with hollow eyes. He faces both communities. Well, obviously, that's a sighting of something that, in a way, we've become very familiar with, which is a Gormley sculpture, but with somewhere of great significance. So I'd like to sort of just move on, really, to ask you both to talk about, uh, really, these very pressing matters. So... Marion, your, your UP website mm -hmm. talks about what the projects are. And for instance, UP projects curates and commissions contemporary art for public places. Mm -hmm. We believe in working collaboratively with, art, collaboratively with artists, communities, and others to do this. Mm -hmm. Now, it, everybody says they work collaboratively. Mm -hmm. How do you manage to work collaboratively, truly? Um, I think that... UP has been going since 2002, and in that time, the way in which art in the public domain has uh, changed or manifested has definitely uh, given us lots to think about, mainly because the way in which the public domain and our understanding of it has shifted. So I think, to come back to this point of collaboratively, uh, the project that we're doing recently with public works, for example, um, it's within a context of Rotherhithe. It's uh, working alongside someone like Telford Holmes who um, are looking at how they can essentially redevelop that area. And rather than working collaboratively with a community in order to produce a work, what we're doing with that project is before any kind of development plans have even been unveiled, we're working with the community to establish, well, what does the developer really need to even be thinking about? Because I think everyone has had experience of the idea of public consultation mm -hmm. with public art, and it's really dangerous. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, plenty of very, very good and ambitious abstract schemes mm -hmm. have been dashed by very small-minded local thinking. How do you avoid this? And what, do you, what mechanism do you use to start properly. I mean, you said that, but can you reinforce that slightly? So the Public Works project is slightly different in that we are working with the community there to be able to advise Telford Homes going forward on what they should even be okay. thinking about should be there in the development more broadly. But I think there have been other examples where we have worked with communities where we have set up a steering panel that has got people on it from the local art school, young students who are studying art at the time, teachers who are embedded within the community. So we are re really able to understand what the fabric of that community is, where the tensions are, because one of the things we want is for people to be able to guide us in our thinking. It's not necessary for them to veto work and for them to be presented with a plethora of ideas mm. where they say, we like this one, but could you make it in orange? It's not sort of that um, idea, but it's more so that we can really understand 
understand the complexity of the conditions on the ground. Because if we want artists to go in and work in these contexts, we need to understand what circumstances are those seeds going to fall in and how can we best support those artists in order to navigate sometimes what can be quite challenging contexts that we're working in. Alistair, do you, do you have example? I mean, let, let's not do examples of things that just haven't happened because of things being pulled. Um, I just want you to help a bit about this relationship um, in terms of perhaps MIMA, your relationship between the public. And by the way, the public, what are the public? We have to get onto that. There are, now people say there are publics, mm -hmm. of course. That's people. much more right on. <laughs> Uh, but um, so can you talk about sort of that, cons that kind of relationship that you established at MIMA with people who use the place? Yeah, and I mean, my, my, and before MIMA as well, my strategy was always in a way to try and, rather than sort of come up with an artist's idea and then try and sell it to a community or a neighbourhood or a mm. public or publics, um, it was to try and in a way work with what's already going on. And I think that always proved more successful in sort of getting people to understand how art could actually work in certain situations and certain scenarios. Um, so in, in, in Middles, for example, one of the things that we did, which was, was really to look at what are the conditions on the ground, what are people already doing, and how can we use, work with artists, work with artistic strategies and thinking to take part and work with what's already in play there so that we're joining in with basically a kind of social economic situation mm. with an artistic mindset rather than asking that situation to try and join in art, whatever that is. Um, and I've always found that's quite, actually quite a good strategy to employ because it means you're basically applying artistic thinking to people in, into people's ordinary lives. So you say that again, sorry? You're applying artistic thinking okay. and strategies into, into people's ordinary lives. What they're, what they're already doing. And, it, and it's in those situations where people start to understand what this stuff, this weird stuff called art, can actually do and actually can have an impact in a very direct way rather than a sort of slightly nebulous uh, or sort of, you know, um, theoretical way. And which leads me to this whole idea of, you know, in fact, your strapline for the Whitworth was the Whitworth making art useful Making, making art useful since 1889. Oh, well, I actually found was out that the, 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 the strap line for the Manchester Art Gallery was exactly that in That's 1823. Amazing. Yeah. So the idea of making art useful. That's a very old idea. It, Can we talk it, about that? Yeah, yeah. Please. Yeah. Well, well basically, the, I mean, the, the, the short version is, of course, is that um, our, our last 200 years of history is one that's defined by this idea of autonomous art. And we, we could touch here perhaps upon sculpture and how that, mm, you know, and exactly. how, how, we, how we conceive of and think about sculpture. Um, but it's really one that's defined in Western Europe or centred around Western European thinking, uh, the philosophies of Immanuel Kant, for example, um, about sort of isolating art out of the system and thinking about it on its own terms. This is really, it kind of created the conditions that were very supportive of an art market. It was very um, support, supportive of the conditions that created kind of um, hierarchy, hierarchies within society, um, but it's one model of art. And, and what that model of art did, basically, mm. was push out the idea of use value 
um, within art itself, which for a long, you know, 40,000 years of human history, people have been using art in their daily lives in all kinds of ways for a very long time. So it was really about not necessarily doing away with art in its current form, but reintroducing this idea of use as a way to actually understand what's going on when we do art or we look at art or we employ art, that process, and think about art as a process which is then um, employed in life practices. Um, so that's sort of the underlying philosophy of it. But what it means in practical terms is that I, I've become particularly interested mm. in forms of art in which they are, their very definition is defined about their use. So rather than prescribing meaning from the outset, which is dictated primarily by you know, an author or so on, the meaning itself is derived over time through, through processes. Um, Do you have an example? Well, I'll give you know, one of the slides. I could yeah. use some of the slides I, I kind of submitted. One of the slides is um, a project I did years ago in Cumbria called The Greasy Pole, which is um, uh, a, 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 it's a sculpture. It's a public art project with Jeremy Della and Alan Kane, and they'd been researching their folk archive in this town called Egremont mm. in Cumbria, where they had this 700-year-old uh, country fair festival where they basically dreamt up mad sports to do... Um, you know, to, 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 to enrich their lives at, at Harvest Festival. One of the sports they used to do was called the Greasy Pole, and it was basically a wooden 30-foot pole erected in the marketplace with a leg of lamb at the top, and people had to shin up. Well, there's this big sort of scramble for the whole town to try to and get, get the, the leg of lamb down and get mm. the prize. Uh, well, actually, and ribbons and got other prizes and so on. Anyway, when, when Jeremy and Anne were re up there researching their folk archive, it coincided with the town stopping the pole event because they couldn't get public liability insurance. <laughs> so we said, okay, well, what could we do to bring the pole back? How could we preserve <laughs> okay. this heritage ritual, which was, in essence, an art project, and, and, and in essence, a sculpture, even a temporary sculpture for a weekend, uh, once a year during Harvest Festival, and we basically, we worked out that if we made a kind of permanent carbon fibre Nike Pro version of the pole, fully engineered with architects and, you know, proper footings and so on, we could have this as a permanent public sculpture by Jeremy Deller and Alan Kane, therefore part of the regeneration strategy for the town, doing all those things mm. that public sculpture can do. But at the same, oh, there it is, at the same time, being this, reinstating this piece of dangerous sporting apparatus uh, that they can use for their, as part of their 700-year-old tradition. So it's a, again, it's about the idea of working within what uh, a community or communities are doing as part of their artistic culture, because this is their art, this is their culture, this is what this is, Jeremy Allen's folk art methodology. Um, but equally, it has currency in the world of contemporary art at the same time, and produces a very interesting. So do they have feature. a greasy? Do they have a greasy pole all year round? Yeah, yeah. Although there's um, there's a special sort of spiked guard, you know, like you get on Victorian oh, drainpipes yeah. to stop, stop you climbing it during the during the year. And then the ritual now of the festival is at the opening Friday, the guard is raised to the top and it turns upside down to hold a basket to hold the leg of lamb and the ribbons. Um, but what I found out is, is uh, despite that safety mechanism to get the insurance. On a Friday night, people shin up it anyway after the pub. <laughs> when you 
work on something. I mean, do, I mean, I don't think we're all going to be in massive agreement about everything, mm -hmm. but I'm just interested in this relationship to function because, you know, use is function. And, and so the idea that, I mean, in a bit we'll go through the hist what happened to sculpture in this country from the 80s through because it's a very, very important history. And sculpture's in a bit of crisis, to put it mildly, because I don't know what it is. Mm. Massively commodified now in a way that it wasn't before because of art fairs and so on. But moving back to this idea of um, how, I mean, art can be useful because it is peaceful or... What, what is the role? What kind of role do you think of when you're commissioning? Maybe we shouldn't talk too abstractly. Mm. Give an example of something you're, you've been working on and how, it, how that creates function. Uh, Perhaps um, the, uh, the, the out piece... Of the two, uh, there are two slides that I've given in. One is Matthew Derbyshire's yeah, Sculpture that Garden. very important. And he was a student here, a very good student here. Yeah, and that, that idea, it was, um, kept, comes from the artist. Matthew wanted to reference, this was a, a work for Battersea, and he wanted to reference how in 1951 there had been a sculpture mm. uh, exhibition at Battersea Park, and um, he was where he was working. The location he was working in was right across the street from the park, and he wanted to reference this sort of sculptural history of the area. But what he has done, or what he's chosen to do, um, is to make uh, representations of the sculpture that were in that exhibition. But he has made them much smaller in their scale, and he's also made them into a playground for children. So I think he himself is then referencing this idea of how do you engage with so this So you work. say it really functions now for children? Because it's a playground for children, you know, so its function comes in there, but it's his choice to want to make that at a scale where it's no longer something that you look up at and mm. can't get close to, but he's given it a completely different meaning by, by doing what he's done. Similarly, the work we're doing with... Um, public works in Rotherhithe, they have set up the public living room in a way it houses activities and it has events in it. It's architectural, it's, it's got a presence within the area. Can you just explain, it's a place where people go, is it? It's, it's called the Rotherhithe Public Living Room and it's a place where people go in order to... Um, there are lots of events mm. and activities programmed by art projects and public living room that involve um, uh, working with uh, local community members. There's been a series of events that have happened. The calendar is online. Local people, local residents, people who use Rotherhithe for work, for whatever reason, can come. Um, so you could, it, in a way, it has a functional and a use value. What they want to get out of it is what they can, what public works and can take forward to um, advise Telford Homes on that the area needs when they do go in to develop it. So I think it's got, it's both a space where mm. activity is happening, it both, it, it in itself is a kind of architectural uh, work that they have produced. They are an architectural artist uh, duo. Uh, but at the same time, it's still got an outcome yet to come, which we don't know what it's going to be. <coughs> now I'm going to throw in some words and things that have been around questions about public art thing called public art, site specificity, mm -hmm. how wonderful, what a notion, I mean, uh, 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 years ago, people could hardly make a work 
without referring to the decline of manufacturing or something because the work would be situated in the place as someone has done all the research. That seems to have gone slightly out of the window to the point where even art, to the point where though artists in a way have to create, sculptors have to create their own context in order to show their work. In other words, it's a strange, there's a back to front feeling there in terms of function. But site specificity was very important. That's why I read that thing about Anthony Gormley's piece, looking out over Bogside and the other way, and the idea of the history of a place and how much, um, how much um, do you feel that's still a real currency? What do you think, Alison? Um, yeah, I think site specificity came out of a particular yeah. moment, didn't it? it and, did. and in a way, it was a reaction against, there was a whole sort of turd in the plaza moment as well. So it was a kind of reaction against yes. that to say, no. In a way, it was about making a case for sculpture being relevant, I think, and being connected with a place. And it was also tied up with theories around placemaking mm. that emerged around that, you know, similar times as so well. So important, yeah. And, and about contextual art. Mm and work operating in the world at large. This, you know, this is all the discourse mm. that created that idea of um, being site-specific. But then, of course, it became, like all these things, it became a kind of catch-all word that didn't, actually didn't mean anything in the end because everybody said what they were doing was site-specific. Everyone. And it was all you know, research-based practice and all that sort of stuff. Um, so, yeah, it's become a kind of painful thing. Like most of these art terms, they start out as being well-intentioned and they end up being quite painful. Probably the same will happen to kind of you know, usefulness and things like that yes. as well. Um, but I think the, the point is that actually is about making these things relevant and making them have... Uh, well, I would argue, actually, which is a more expanded um, question of use value, which is around the operational. And I think, really, work... If, if you imagine all arts kind of exist for me on a kind of spectrum, on a slider scale, and at one end you have operation, and at the other end you have representation. And all work, so basically the thing, things in the representational okay. world, they, they're symbolic, they operate on emotion, they operate, and what people might say, they operate purely visually. You know, it's, mm. it gives me a good feeling, or it, it evokes something, or it's to do with something, but it isn't actually doing anything. And you might sort of put autonomous sculpture at that end of the spectrum, say, say Henry Moore, something like that. Uh, at the end of the spectrum, you have what I would call the operational, which is things that are actually taking part in the operations of the world. And the more extreme examples might be something like Nuria Guell, which I had a slide of as well, who turned a housing block effectively into a sculpture through a financial um, um, instrument to allow uh, an activist group to occupy a housing block yeah. by taking the doors off. Yeah. Right? And then you've got all sorts of things in between. But I think it's only when things start to have an operational function in people's lives mm. that it starts to have traction and currency in people's, in people's mindsets. And you also, I uh, saw on the, on the slide, showed um, uh, the Angel of the North, of course, which I would say really only became accepted in, in Gateshead slash Newcastle when the, when the Alan Shearer shirt mm. was put on the back of it. Until that point, everybody said, what a waste of bloody money. Why are we spending all this money on dumb art that's got nothing to do with us? Um, but as soon as it could be claimed by that group of people and to say, oh, I know how to use an Anthony Gormley's culture. I'm going to stick a wacky great football shirt on the back of it. Suddenly it was adopted because people could ad adopt it into their day-to-day -day life rituals. And that's in a way, what I talk about when I talk about usership is, 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 is what I mean by um, works of art or art processes functioning in day-to-day -day life. But, but, but I just want to say that you're equating 
someone putting a sheer shirt on with day-to-day -day life is slightly simplistic because they but people do look you know people are very very wary about sculptures and things when they appear to begin with but then people then start to claim it as being being very proud of it after a certain amount of time. So I think a Shearer shirt isn't just because, you know, it's everyday football. Football is very important in a different kind of way. So as to a kind of slight mystification of it, as opposed to a demystification, I might argue that. Yeah, I think it's slightly overdone to think, oh, like it's football, therefore it's everybody's... No, it's not that. It's, it's going to be beyond, oh, just because it's football. Yeah. It's because, obviously, there's a particular cult around Alan Shearer, for example. There's all sorts of complex reasons yeah, yeah, yeah. why that's a cultural phenomenon I mean, but it's really in important. the North East. But it's about the two things coming together, that they're sort of... Okay. They're, they're bringing them together in the middle yeah. rather than kind of usurping okay. it. Mariam, I was going to ask you about um, the, the drawing room. Oh, sorry, Public I shouldn't room. call it drawing room. <laughs> Public living room. Yes. But also the idea of the temporary or the permanent, which is yes. another one that actually, honestly, these are all things that have to be dealt with. Mm. Because historically, people got, got fed up with the turd in the plaza, as you call it, or the giant work that was sort of abstract, a giant thing outside a, an insurance office or something mm. like that, and, and, and stopped seeing it and started thinking that if you had something that was temporary, it might enter some kind of collective memory or something. Mm. So how permanent is this? Is it just purely while they're putting up the homes? The, well, the, it's there until it opened at the end of October. It's going to be there until the middle of December, roughly, at the moment. Um, but it's, it's there because it's trying to create connections. It's trying to bring people together. It's trying to create a forum in which people can have a voice. I think one of the things in which that I've seen in the time that I've been working in London, I did my BA in public art in 1998, and in that time, London has developed enormously in that time. You can't move around mm. the city without seeing a crane. And a lot of the time that has happened within communities, within neighbourhoods, with no say, with no real... You know, you get a notice that goes up that says this is happening. But actually, how much say do you really have in that? And I think one of the things Public Works were interested in doing was to use this moment to create connections, to find a way to bring people together, and then how do you create a, a space for a say to come out of that, that can have meaning and that can have influence. And I think that's where it's, it's yet to be determined how this is going to play out. And I think, so yes, it is temporary, but I do think, picking up on the point of the temporary or the permanent, I think there is room for both. And I think yeah, site-specificity do. does come into this in that if you were commissioning, from my perspective, lots of temporary works, site specificity becomes useful because everybody, every artist you work with will have a different approach to that site mm. and their specificity may not be specific for someone else. The history they are interested in may not be a history somebody else is looking at. So temporary for me is very important, but I think permanent has its place as well. I think it does. But well, nothing's permanent, is it? Because it, <laughs> asks, but because it asks questions through its permanence. Perhaps. It's not overthought. Anyway, um, I, I mean, can we just talk about, I mean, I just want to talk about um, that we've always had something called public art. And in fact, there were people at art school who were trained separately to do public art as opposed we to were. the <laughs> other people. And, uh, you know, I was reminded of a, a guy that I taught years ago at Chelsea who, who, who was always encouraged to sort of set off something in the middle of a field that just let out a lot of water or something like that. And, uh, and it's like, oh, great, that's, that's public. 
So there was this terrible distinction, which mm. really is appalling, between public. So in a way, that's changed. We don't have that notion anymore, perhaps. Mm. And the idea that then the public can come and say that this bright red thing that sticks like looks sticks mm. up out of the ground should be should go because and they want a, a sculpture of, of Bartok. Mm. But I, th I think when I was at Chelsea, we had a, you know, it was a public art BA. It was before Chelsea moved to Millbank or any of that had happened. We were in a completely separate building from everybody else. We yeah. were actually in Lime Grove in Shepherd's Bush. Um, and everybody else got to be at Manresa Road in the much better building. But we shared a building with Hammersmith and West London Builders College, which we loved. Um, and it was a completely different way in which we were in a way, uh, exposed to different ideas within art. A lot of our um, learning was around sort of land art and the artists are in, in the 60s and who, artists who were breaking out of the gallery space and institutional critique and all of that. Um, but we had very little to do with the fine art department. Can you explain to people what institutional critique is? Uh, my understanding of it was it's when artists turned the lens back at the institution in which they were showing their work. Thank you. I hope that's They're it. pulling the rug from under their own feet. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or, or turning the lens rather than the lens being outside or somewhere else, the lens came back on the very apparatus that was facilitating the work to be produced and uh, shown and displayed in this context. I, th I think um, I really enjoyed learning about it, and it's definitely what informed some of the ways in which I operated at that point as an artist, because it's what then made the outside be relevant because it was about breaking beyond the, the building um, and operating in a context where you were free of that but ironically coming out of the frying pan into a different kind of fire. <laughs> there was a slight irony there in institutional critique that it only actually became people in the institution that could do the institutional critique. <laughs> Because <laughs> so they so and the only ones listening. Yeah, 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 yeah. Maybe no one else cared. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Sort of navel gazing, Goes I down guess. A hole. Yeah. yeah. But um, but yeah. So our our exposure to those ideas was very much around that, um, and we had very little to do with the fine art department. It was exactly. almost public art was almost seen as the slightly embarrassing cousin of fine yeah, art. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, really, kind of. <laughs> and they treated us like that. It was like sort of training well. to be a teacher. I mean, yeah. not in a bad way, but yeah. while yeah. at art school, yeah. sort of and there like were always artists who did kind of public art. Yes, yeah. that's completely separate. Until, until there was a sort of 90s moment where it became okay to do public art. That's yeah. right. And then, there was a, and, and then that accelerated the market in public art because you had sort of percent for art and section 106, whatever it's yeah, called. Yeah. And then what started to happen that was quite interesting was that basically developers and town planners and architects started to design their own things that looked like contemporary art that's right. that didn't cost as much of the stuff that really was officially contemporary mm. art. So in a way, that's also a reason why we started to move away from uh, things that look like sculpture mm. in, lots of, in lots of ways, because a lot of the, the opportunities and commissioning processes that were available normally to do a kind of turd in a plaza or to do a, a site-specific work of art could be done by architects or designers at a much, much lower cost. And you, you see a lot of those things still happening now. You do. Yeah. So in a way, then, art artists moved in an, into another place, mm. which worked, started to go into the realm of research-based practice, social practice, all this sort of contextual yeah. work, but still was quite autonomous at the same time, that it was about uh, kind of basically a, a supply and demand of the artist's career and the commissioning economy, rather than really about doing stuff that would actually work well for people in the world. 
And draw a line parallel with that was the relationship to sculpture to itself. And something like the Royal College Sculpture Department spending a lot of time wanting to change its name because nobody used the word sculpture, nobody says that's what I do. Somehow, in the end, thank God, they stuck to it. But this, the idea was that it would be sort of something rather. And, and a lot of discussion at sculpture is ab everything but this lump in front of you. Mm. And this kind of fear about what it is. And, you know, people starting to paint on the sculpture course, not that well. Or taking photographs and you'd say, well, if you're taking photographs, portraits, why don't you look at uh, August Sander? And they go, no, no, no. <laughs> it's sort of, you see, there's a kind of, so the idea of definition and so on was going absolutely out, out of um, order. And then I have to say that what's happened now, unfortunately, is that because of the advent of the art fair, the whole relationship to the object has so changed and you have young people or people at art school really producing things that can be packaged quite easily in a, in a case and, this, and totally autonomous because, of course, an art fair shows these objects without any context. And that sounds really sad, but it's true. So there's a whole shift towards now, towards a thing that looks like a sculpture, but perhaps without some of the discussion about what it is. But actually what you have happening is, is sort of a bifurcation in the world of art. And actually now what's very interesting is there isn't one art world. There are many art worlds all operating simultaneously. So for example, that idea of sculpture for art fairs mm. yes. operates within the, the system of art fairs and people who go to art fairs and people who buy and collect. But for people in, I don't know, Carlisle or um, Gateshead or whatever, I mean, that's completely irrelevant. You know, their yes. idea of art is totally and utterly different from that and that has no currency um, in their life. Whereas traditionally, you might, when there was this idea, you, you did have the turd in the plaza and they were plonked everywhere I love else. I the turd in the plaza just or, keeps um, coming up. as I've heard them called, gorm troopers um, <laughs> marching across the country. You know, there was this idea of sensibility of a sort of shared idea of what public sculpture was. Mm. That, I think, has started to recede. And uh, the sort of world of social engagement has become one of the dominant forms of, uh, of public commissioning. Can, can both of you just give some examples of, it's very good to introduce these ideas of, social, the, of, of social involvement, it, what form can that take? I mean, I know it's rather well known to take a meal, the form mm. of a meal, mm. you know, the idea of eating together or arranging some sort of collected gathering. Well, jo Joseph Boyce proclaimed forms. social sculpture, you know, way back in the which was basically a form of education stroke mysticism, um, shape, yeah. stroke shamanism. Just uh, as mystical as Yeah, because, as it was, because it was the world of, the, of, of objects in, in a mode of play be, being I mean, his basically was an educational project. That's mm. what he was doing. And he, he was using objects in very traditional senses as ritual objects. Um, so in a way, he, he, he was sort of very traditional, but at the same time, you know, creating this new language, apparently new language um, within the field of contemporary art. So, you know, that's quite a sort of important antecedent for a lot of stuff that happens now, which, you know, has all sorts of, you know, this relational practice, which is another particular moment. Please which, talk about that Which a was basically about people sitting in... Um, well, basically people un take, doing social processes within the 
performative frame of art, either in an art gallery, in an, in an mm. art center, in a, in a space designated for the, for the sort of, you know, the, the consumption of art, but it was doing essentially kind of non-art practices, and it might be gardening, might be farming, might be food, but certainly still positioning that as a, as a work of art, as a sculpture. But I would differentiate that from other forms of social practice, which is the horrendous sort of umbrella term for it as well, um, which might be, you know, for example, the things I'm interested in, which yeah. is things are actually basically have a double status, where they are both the thing itself and a, and a proposition for a work of art. So it might be a, a, a political campaign as, as, a, as a work of art, but also as a real political campaign. It might be, for example, a restaurant that is actually a restaurant, but is also a work of art. Um, it might be uh, basically a housing scheme, which is you know, an artist's project, but is actually houses for living in. So you know, I, I think that's actually quite an interesting area to operate in and sort of where I've drifted from working in the sort of autonomous world through my career into sort of actually where I think um, um, art is most interesting right now. Um, but then there's the world of participation as well, which I, I can't stand the word participation, because <laughs> it's basically people participating in someone else's agenda, um, and, and usually primarily for the benefit of, of the, you know, the, the designated artist or commissioner, rather than actually than the people who've been you know, elected or sometimes actually enforced to participate in the project as well, you know, where you sort of have a gang of people making stuff, um, but it's about making a work of art for a small number of people. I, I wonder whether that's also, you know, I, I'd love to hear your view on whether that's also driven slightly by the Arts Council as well and some of the agendas that come from the funders. I think it is, it is partly. I think it's a self-feeding cycle. Mm. And I think, um, but the Arts Council didn't invent it. Mm. You know, they, it, it, it do you came think they just reacted to it? Yeah, it, it, it became, like a lot of these things, it sort of became adopted and co-opted mm. by the sort of bureaucratic system and became a good way to justify public value mm -hmm. because it, was, it looked like a good photo for the Arts Council brochure or whatever, which then in terms of talking up to DCMS and, uh, and ultimately the Treasury said, look, this is what art can do. It can make people smile Which still comes back to together. the fact that we need to validate the value of art at such yeah. a level. However we define art. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mariam, you, uh, you know, I mean, what we're, what we're coming on to now is this, the fact that we can talk about work outside the gallery, but also how the gallery functions and mm -hmm. perhaps a change in the function for the gallery. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, for instance, perhaps a political, something good politically happening, rather than ridiculous pretend demonstrations, <laughs> up with everything, down with nothing, that kind of thing. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, okay. I want to go to that demonstration. <laughs> oh, God, I really don't. Um, talk, talk please about about that that relationship to your commissioning the fact that you have no fixed place you're you totally different yep. in you're an independent commissioners who can kind of in a way situate anything anywhere mm -hmm. but perhaps that's why you've got this sort of well I shouldn't call it a drawing room the public living room, public living room. <laughs> which I accidentally called the public loving room in an email the other day um, and um, but then I thought actually it makes it sound very interesting um, I think uh, the challenge the, the exciting part of working with no gallery space is that you can 
work anywhere. Um, the challenging part of that is that, you know, no place is really uh, without its owners, if I can put it like mm. that. So one of the things that very quickly becomes apparent is when we say public, do we just mean outside? Because I don't know what public means anymore. Because the minute I want to do something somewhere, very quickly the forces that own that space reveal themselves, be they the council all the way through to private ownership. So I think one of the things that I'm very interested in in the work that we do is trying to unpack what this per word public means, um, because we've got it with public space, public art, the public, and I think that those definitions definitely do need unpacking. Um, but one of the strands of programming that we run as a result of thinking about this in the office is something called This is Public Space, which is a strand of digital commissions that we do for the internet. It is a space that we all inhabit as people. Lots of us go to it, lots of us spend time in it. It embodies, facilitates all the contradictions, challenges, and more that you get in the physical world. And it seemed like a really interesting space in which we could be commissioning artists. This work is the latest work that we've just launched. We're back to the public loving room. Um, the, that work, Formality, is the latest work that we've launched in October this year. And um, it's by an artist called Ewan Atkinson who is very interested in how uh, worlds are constructed. What is it that we put in a situation, either by choice or unintended consequence, or as a result of sort of history evolving and situations evolving that allow for a community, a society, a country to evolve in the way that it is. So he thinks about some very big questions and he was working on something called the Neighbourhood Project online for years and years in which he was making things like uh, tourism posters for it and you know it's essentially a fictitious community that he has created and you can go to the neighborhood project and you can see drawings and all sorts of things that he's done we approached him and said would he consider making a work for this as public space which is entirely online and he he has made a, a really beautiful challenging wonderful serious work um, called formality which is a visa application service for the neighborhood and you go onto Formality, it's on our website at the moment. If you go onto the homepage, it's there. You just click through, it takes you straight through to the microsite that he has created. He's used HyperCard, which is an old 80s software. Um, and you have to answer a series of questions, absurd questions, um, like... Like what? Like, you are standing outside, waiting for your friends, and it starts raining. How does your moustache look? <laughs> So you sort of find yourself going, what's this got to do with me wanting? Yeah, I haven't got a Well, I, I ticked immaculate because, you know. <laughs> but the, the, the thing is, it's, it's playful and it's fun and it asks absurd questions, but actually fundamentally, it is about something very serious, which is what is the mechanism, the apparatus and the digital software through which we create these forms that people have to navigate who are trying to change their life, alter their situation, and the way in which social acceptability is structured through a mechanism that then denies you that access. So I think he is touching on a very mm. dark uh, subject matter, which is fundamentally shaping people's lives today, but he's done it in a way where he's asking you to have citizenship to the neighbourhood instead. Don't you think formally it'd be quite nice to have it somewhere else? We could talk to him about it yeah. and see what because, he says. Because, you know, we're doing a talk with it's him like on how Mondays, things manifest so, themselves. Yeah. It's very important. Yeah, I mean, it came about for online because the Neighbourhood Project yeah. is something that he has created entirely yeah. online. 
And we offered him a commission and said, what would you like to do? And this was his response, so we facilitated it. But, you know, it's only just launched. We're speaking with him on Monday. Uh, we're doing a talk at the Barbican. People are welcome to come. Um, and it's a question that I can put to him and say, how well, else do just, you imagine it? It's to just manifest? you have to... Yeah. I mean, that's down a hole, isn't it? Yeah. All that stuff. It's gone. Anyway, I mean, I'm terrible at it, looking at doing that. Um, um, I mean, I think perhaps when we talk about public and private and space, apart from state galleries, which are very threatened anyway for, for money, it might be that private is seen as inside and public is out in a very false way mm. in terms of funding. Mm. Or is that just too simplistic? Yeah, it's complicated. I mean, I mean effectively, the, the Whitworth, for example, technically isn't a public institution. It's, uh, it, it? it's owned by the University of Manchester. So it, technically it's a, it's, a, it's, it's a corporate entity, although part of a registered charity, but it's not public. It's, it's, that, that's, a, that's a private system. It's, it's funded, it gets pu some mm. public funding, but it's not completely public. It chooses to be public in its manner and its, you know, its founding intentions and all those things. But, but specifically, it's not public in the same way that the Manchester Art Gallery is, and that it's okay. owned by all the people of the city. Um, so there are, there, are, there are complexities and all that. And then, of course, you know, way, the ways that museums are programmed is shaped and directed by private influence as much as it is by well, public influence as well. Yeah, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. And it, it depends from institution and to also, institution. And also, outside space is mainly very private. Mm. When you, you know, I spent years advising a local authority. I won't say which one because it's in bad odour, but a long time about public art. Mm. And, you know, you'd often think that somewhere is apparently in public space, but of course it's private, private land, private yeah. this and so on. I mean, that's the nice thing. That's why I like, that's, that's why I've, I've, I've sort of come back to institutions because they are the last public, yes, genuinely right. public spaces left in the cityscape in a way that actually is very, very hard to find. More than even the universities. Yeah. yeah. Perhaps. Perhaps, although, yeah, again, there's complexities. Yeah. So that's very interesting. We've got a park as well. <laughs> um, and just quickly, um, to just characterize slightly the crisis in sculpture and how, how together in this discussion and I'm going to open up to the floor soon, but in this discussion, we, we want to sort of start visualizing how those objects can work, things can work, in what kind of place. And I think um, there, is, um, there is space for the static and the ornamental. That's the fun function can extend past the notion of people help, about the notion of helping, you know, a, a liberal idea of people being helped. It's more to do with desire and wish, and art comes out of wish, doesn't mm. it? Once you get it, you get it. And, everybody, and also what's changed immensely since I've been involved in this is the relationship between public, publics, numbers, and contemporary art. It's gone from writing The Guardian pre-internet when that literally hardly anyone read about contemporary, to it going through an amazing kind of groovy lifestyle nonsense, YBA, God knows what, 90s, to then being enormously attended. I mean, something like Tate Modern is immensely attended. Mm. I mean, people can moan about how much attention people are paying, but it's like, it's a thing. 
So but there's I, a I, big but change. But I slightly worry about experience culture in all this as well. Yeah, talk about that. That um, I mean, I have, to, I have to be honest. I kind of, when I went to see the, the show here, the Anthony Gormley show. I mean, it was Instagram Central, and I kind of thought, why is everybody doing this? What what is going on here? I mean, they're coming. They're having this. They're be, they've been sold this experience of some sort of emotive, uh, sen sensory moment in their lives, and you know, they've paid whatever it is, and then they, they queue up for 30 minutes, 40 minutes to go through a metal tunnel and come out the other end and say, you know, they, did, they do all this stuff and that photographs themselves doing it and, and everybody was enjoying themselves. I mean, it wasn't like a, you know, it was, there was an energy in the room, but it just seemed to be that, it, that as soon as that was over, it was back into the world again. And I, I, I was troubled by that. And I get troubled by the fact that uh, there is again this bifurcation happening where you have the world of which which is works of mm. art operating in an experiential emotive way which seems to be complicit in a particular version of economics a particular version of the kind of world operating system which is kind of is keeping people controlling people keeping people in their place and is about power and is around politics and there's another version of art which is you know is more social is more process-based and, these, and, and they, they seem to be having less and less to do with each other. And I think it would be... It, why, but why is your one more social and the Instagram stuff less social? I mean, please spell it out. I'm not, I'm not saying one... And I'm not saying the social is necessarily mine, because there's, yeah, no, there's no, a whole good world of work like that. To yes, well, I, I got into terrible trouble years ago because I, sort of, I, I was in a sort of another panel discussion and I said that, you know, these sort of giant sort of puppet theatre things you have in the street, you know, that were, were basically kind of like the neoliberal version of Nazi marches. It was sort of everybody kind of rolling along, going what, with the programme What, Punch and Judy? Yeah, Punch and Judy, that's another version. Um, but you know these kind of giant puppets you get in Liverpool? Oh, and those, these, you yeah, know, so, oh, you know, yeah, they, they, these oh. sort of... But, you know, there is, there is a processional experiential culture which is actually part of keep, keeping people in their place. And one of the things that I also worry about is, the, is, is because art does have a capacity mm. uh, to cause trouble and, and to do disruptive things and to make things and to, and to make change happen. And, and I think it's best, either, either part of this spectrum of art, which is a kind of wonderful complex world, when it has the capacity to make change happen, for me is most interesting and most powerful. The, just, the, the, there's, a, there's a danger, I think, when it goes back into kind of pure entertainment um, and pure sort of self-congratulation um, that we're, we're, missing, we're missing a trick and we're going down a road we shouldn't be going down. But that's my personal view. Slightly puritanical there. I'm a, I'm a puritan. Marion. I, I think there is another group of people that have also become very interested in the institution and they're people who have historically seen themselves not represented by the institution. Mm. And I think, you know, there is a danger to say it's experiential and this is... The, the thing you just said that really stuck out for me was um, the, the, the role of the institution in keeping people in their place. And actually, there's a whole group. Sorry, the what? The role of the institution keeping people in their place is what. I don't necessarily it's, it's the institution, the building. Yeah. Um, but a, 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 the institution of art, mm. or a particular version of mm. art, mm. which is an institution mm. as well, which is controlled and manipulated by a certain sector of society. Mm. Um, so, of course, I, I think a, a better version is if you open up that element of control mm. of what mm. art is mm. and who who experiences it, who engages with it, 
is, is broader and more democratic, then you get a better version, but more complex picture. But I think that's also, that, that is definitely happening. There is a generation who are much more engaged. They want to know, um, can they see work by artists that are not white men, for example, you know, and they are going and seeking these uh, answers within the institution because one of the things they see is that uh, there is a a deeper understanding of actually the powerful role that culture has played and the powerful role that images have played and the powerful role that narratives have played when they are told in a certain way and a certain kind of art history has been projected. And I, and I, I would say, yes, fine, if there's an experiential side that you're talking about, that, you know, hashtag selfies with art, which is a legit hashtag, um, that's one side, but there is a an appetite from a generation who want to see a recalibration of the story in which they see people of colour, more women, more um, unpacking of historical ideas that bring forward a much broader understanding of history, but also the role of Britain, the role of the institution, all of that, there is an appetite and a demand for it. And I would say, if you go to some of the shows at um, the, the Tate or anywhere like that, it isn't just the selfies with art generation, it's also that generation who is looking for that story. But you could also combine the two. I mean, it's not that the two are mutually exclusive. You know, you can, you can have, you know, like I do Instagram myself, and, you know, it's, it, it plays a role in culture, mm. but mm. it's about combining it, not having that the be-all and end-all. It's about combining it with politics mm. and, you know, all the, all the things you just spoke about, mm. because I mean, it's also a vehicle to do that. I, I mean, I think you're, that's very helpful and, and, and brilliant, both of you. Um, I I'm, I'm think that it's been amazing, and thank you both unbelievably, thank tremendously. You. I've really enjoyed it, and it's been very stimulating. And, I, and we haven't even begun to touch on a quarter, but at least we've touched on some rather basic points, which yes. is what we needed to do. So thank you very thank much, you. and thank you all thank in you. the audience. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this recording, feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. <laughs>